Welcome to another episode of Something Came From Baltimore. I'm your host, Tom Gowker, and, and tonight on the phone, we get to reach back into the Something Came From Baltimore archives and get a chance to listen to Wayman Boone. Wayman Boone's the lead singer and guitarist of an amazing rock band called Splendor. It's hard to believe that Halfway Down the Sky was released 21 years ago, but time has been kind to Wayman Boone as he successfully transitioned to music to film. Wayman is the creative force of Boondocks Films. This interview will just deal with the Wayman Boone's experience with the band Splendor. If you're interested in the Boondock years and get the whole interview, it can be found on the Something Came From Baltimore YouTube page. Before we chat with Wayman Boone, let's take a listen to an album track from the 1999 release Halfway Down the Sky from the band Splendor. The song is called Space Boy. Wayman Boone, thank you for joining us at Something Came From Baltimore. Something Came From Baltimore. Very happy to be here. Great. Hey, uh, we talked about Splendor as uh, your band. Um, Looking back on it, now you're about 15 years into it. Do you feel that you would have lasted longer if you guys communicated better? Or where where was the break? Uh, I think the break usually comes like anything. It, it, we, we were we were together for a long time. I mean, even if the world, because what was interesting about that band, it's like it was either a band that no one had heard of, and or the people that did seemed to worship it. And but we had been together for almost 14 years, so I feel like nothing really would have changed it other than we just needed to do different things. We knew each other more than we we were like married to each other for quite a while. So I, I think it ran its course. We were, we, we kind of did it for a long time and then just said, it's time to throw in a towel. Your decline of your band was kind of a decline of modern rock radio. It wasn't really a format that your music would really just fall into really easily. Yeah, I mean, time, look, times change. Uh, unfortunately, I think the band itself, we didn't have much gusto to want to change with it, which a lot of artists can happily do. We, we just needed to go different ways after... After we, 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 we thought it wasn't necessary for us to go into two full decades together. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a major coup to have Todd Rundgren as a producer and also a first, on your first album. But uh, feedback from Patti Smith from Wave, uh, from Meatloaf from Bad Out of Hell, and XTC from Skylarking is that he was one tough cookie to work with. Uh, was he that way with you guys? He was that way and worse. Uh, the way that that came to be at the time was, you know, we signed with, with Columbia Records at the time, the biggest label in the world, and our A&R guy, uh, his name was J- is James Diener. And James uh, did well. He went on to become the head of... A&M Records and signed Rune 5 and a series of numbers. I just, my, my all-time life mentor and someone to this day, I have, no, I have nothing but respect for him. And he was the one that originally suggested it because there were a lot of producers of the moment at the time that were hot coming off of big records. And he just said, you really need to check out Todd. I mean, this guy is, a le- 
legend. And the interesting part was my publishing company, my management company, and the sort of my handlers and people around me just started sending me all of these articles. And it was article after article on all the negative repercussions of working with Todd with all these bands that basically talked a lot of crap. And I think that the biggest problem of working with him that, you know, we were young and we were rebellious and just and nervous and wanted to make a great record. When you go into the studio and you try to do overdubs and you're trying to just sort of find your way and you work with someone that's done so many albums, to one of you it's like the most important pearl in the world and to the other it's just another day in the office. So to, to, to him the idea of doing overdubs and spending more time to develop sounds and figure out things was not how he worked. He just sort of wanted everything to be one or two takes and move on, one or two takes and move on. And while that's respectable, and while that's certainly, there are certainly many acts that that's how they do it, it wasn't, sometimes you have to tailor to the artists you work with, and that's just not how we were prepared to operate. We had this giant machine of a label on our backs. People were anticipating the record. We didn't know, you know, and any our asses from our elbows, and we needed some time to figure stuff out. Plus, we isolated ourselves because we, we left, we, the band's from New York, we left New York, we ended up going to upstate New York, going to his studio, and it's a very isolated, it's almost like being on a farm in the middle of nowhere, so the label is not there, there's no distractions, which is, which is cool, but it also meant that we were falling under his ruling a lot more than the average band, because sometimes labels come in and they disrupt the flow of things, and I realized part of this, we kind of needed to disrupt it. And then we also had a bunch of weird stuff happen all the time because Todd has this interesting relationship with his fans. He basically hates them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he show and it's kind of his thing. It's like, you know, I know that sometimes you can go to one of those dinner theaters where all the wait staff just kind of insult you and that's why you go there, like a Don Rickles kind of thing and, and he in his own way, it's like he disses his fans very hard and he treats them with very little respect, in a way that they seem to love even more. So we used to have all these strange hippies and weirdos that would just meander into the studio and sit around, and he would just kind of insult them and leave. Because I, I do remember that apparently a decade before that, he had been robbed, mm-hmm. I guess, at, at that studio. Someone at gunpoint, I think they tied him up and they took all of his stuff. And So, I mean, I, I'm sure there was a certain paranoid thing to, if, if something like that happens on your home turf, but it made it a very strange, isolated way to be, and the only person we could look up to was Todd, and he took advantage of that concept because he wasn't really the kindest, the friendliest of, of people when it came to just working on music. Hey, what do you think it was like next? You get up to do a vocal, you know, in today's music, if you're going to sing a song, it's, even though in music videos it looks like a singer sings in one take, the reality is it could be take after take after take comping this one and that one and you could do it on different days I, I remember one of my mentors was a guy named Mike Shipley who, who has since passed and Mike Shipley was a really big mixer and producer and he did everyone from Def Leppard to Green Day to 30 days, thirty Seconds to Mars and and his, he was telling me a funny story about working with Mutt Lang and talking about how um, Elliot from Def Leppard took 30 days to just do the vocal on Love Bites you know, and you go, wow, 30 days, that seems insane. That's almost like a syllable a day. <laughs> it seems a little foreign, 
But in our case, we, you know, that was one extreme. The other extreme for us was like just sing it in one take and then move on. Whether you were flat, whether you were short, it didn't matter. Sometimes I missed up the words. At one point, we were having such a tumultuous relationship that I didn't sing the second verse, and he thought it sounded great. <laughs> it was a it was a tough time. It was definitely a tough time and something new. But at the same time, it gave us a lot of credibility, I suppose, and critics listened to it in a different way because it had Todd's touch on it. And 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 I did my best. I, I, I look at myself as being a very calm individual, but he's the only person that I can remember trying to actually physically fight where we were chasing each other, or I, I should say I was chasing him around the mixing board one day when I was just trying to get my hands on his throat to kill him. One fun thing that he forced us to do was, well, basically to answer your question, what we had to do is we had to do all of our overdubs when he wasn't there. So we would have to either... He had a very, I never worked with anyone, like he had a very regimented schedule where we would record our record from noon to 6 p.m. every day. And any musician in the world that's ever been in the studio would laugh hearing something like that because there are no hours really. And the concept of only, it was even less than doing a nine to five job. So he would come in every day at 11.45, he would make his tea, he would place it on the mixing board, then he would lean back put his two feet up on the board, and we would start at noon. And at the time, he had this very Abbey Road kind of setup where the mixing console was higher up, and it and it looked down on us in this kind of gymnasium. If you kind of picture the band playing in a circle in the gymnasium, and at that point, we were so well rehearsed that we pretty much did everything. All the basic tracks were all done live, and just we all played together in one take. And, and all we would do is we'd stand in that circle, and he would lean over and say, okay, let's start. And then we'd play a song, and then we'd end, and all we would see were just two feet up on the console. And he, he explained to us before we, before we started how he had, like, ADD, and he had to, he would read magazines and type on computers, but try to explain to us that's just how his brain worked, that he really wasn't ignoring us, although I would. I would argue something like that. So he, so we would watch him, and he would put his feet up on the board. He would turn pages in a magazine, and then the song would end. We'd stand in silence, and then we'd say, "How was that?" And then he'd lean forward, press the button, and says, "How was that to you?" And we'd say, "Pretty good." And then he'd say, "Okay, let's move on." Wow. So <laughs> <laughs> that, that's tough well, for your first what album. What it ended up doing was it. I guess some of the fe- some of the fear was bad and some of the fear intention was good. One one fun thing that he would force us to do is that when we did have to do overdubs, both myself being the guitar player, I was the lead singer and the guitar player, and the other guitar player, Jonathan, we would have to each stand you know, in in these studios, big giant speakers. So we have to each stand on each side of the studio in front of our respected uh, respective speaker. Then he'd play the song and he would just look at us and say, "You get one take." So our overdubs would sometimes just be the two of us looking at each other, just playing the song from beginning to end, praying to God we never made a mistake to <laughs> to record. And when you know I listen to the record now, I think Jesus, that's that, some of that is kind of impressive. A lot of bands would never do that now. You don't need to. And we weren't using Pro Tools, even though Pro Tools was out, and everybody used Pro Tools. He just refused to. I've watched the feelings. Uh-huh. I'll watch some scratch. 
feel that you have the urge to just break out and do another album or are you writing do you have any time to do that i well my time is very limited nowadays and 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 part of it is i kind of i kind of tried to shift my energy from i you know i never imagined a day in my life i spent 20 years of my life doing only music so i don't know for, forever in a day so it was very tough when i had to make the decision to switch careers so I do play music every now and then, but not as much. There's certainly a higher demand of people constantly asking me to write with them or write for them or produce for them or work with them. But I just, at this stage in my life, I just don't have the time to do it. I, or at least I can't make the time yet. I, I feel like if the right artist came along, I was just talking the other day to one of my friends about this, like if the right artist came along, I would... I might find I might try to find the time to just do an album with one artist, whether whatever that one artist was. Mm. But that to me has been one of the harder parts for me to accept is to say, okay, well, how how much love do I still have for music, which is still is never going to go away. But it's really time management more than anything. few artists that can get away with a line from you cradle the flies in the back of your mouth and yeah whatever like that's a really cool line and you don't get that in top 40 songs anymore or ever um, <laughs> when i hear that's that true, the imagery of that song is so strong and uh it's such a good diss song and i don't know uh i just love to hear it i just uh i was listening to it and they took the um f word out and put uh, you know, and then took that away, and it kind of ruined the fun of the song. I was a little, little bummed out. Yeah, well, they always, they always have some version, a clean version of it. And I think that, you know, at the, at the time, I, I wish I didn't have to do it that way. That's the only part about music that I didn't like. I always felt I have to, I had to suffer for my art. Yet, you know, I was in a relationship, and I got dumped, and I, she, she pretty much ruined my life as far as I was concerned for that one moment of time. And the greatest thing happened from it because I'd spent so many years trying, you know, every musician, all you want to do is get a record deal, get a record deal, get a record deal. And so one, one day I just showed, was writing these songs and I showed up at her apartment and she was like, it's over, it's over, I'm done, get out. <laughs> and, and I, I decided at that moment in time that I was going to give up everything to just dedicate myself to music, which I had already been doing, but that also meant my job and any income and anything. And at the time, the band had a rehearsal space. Is this some shit still there on 8th Avenue and 42nd Street, a big rehearsal space there that has hundreds of bands in it. And I moved into our rehearsal room, and I just wrote all of these songs about her wrecking my world and ruining my life and trying to trying to get kind of payback because I find myself I can get more vengeance back in songs than I can in real life I don't 
I, I guess in real life, I don't have much of a temper, but I can put lots of temper when it comes to creative stuff. So I just moved into the rehearsal room, and the best story, I mean, it sounds like it's made up, but it really isn't. I stayed in this rehearsal space on and off for about nine months, and I didn't have a job, I had no income, I had no money, I barely had any time, any way to eat. And I came home, and I had an eviction notice on my apartment. This is when I was living in, in Astoria, Queens at the time. And the phone was shut off, everything was done, but I did manage to get one last knock at the door, which was a friend of mine coming and say, hey, they're trying to get in touch with you because Columbia Records is interested now in signing your band. And it was just a great, you know, it was like winning the lottery, really. Every, it's every musician's dream to say, hey, Columbia Records wants to sign you and put a record out. It was just the greatest moment ever. But I do remember how how I thought, and I, maybe it trained me in a, in a bad way, where it's like, oh, I see, so I'm being rewarded for all of this, <laughs> all of this suffering. And I've had to shake that for years since to say, no, no, you can be rewarded without having to only be in the dirt. Mm. But I always did feel like when we would do some of these alternative rocks and pop songs, I would take some chances with lyrics and not use just the traditional one and hopefully get away with it. And I seem to be able to. rarity of you're a black guy in the front of a rock band did you find there any kind of racism at that point i mean we're talking 15 years ago you had some <laughs> yeah living color and they acted like it was the end of the world that's why i was kind of curious that's, that is true i mean between it felt like there was living color there was hootie there was lenny kravitz and there was us and i i guess i didn't really find any form of racism when it had to do with the music itself because one thing that one thing i was very lucky to do which is I, it just doesn't happen anymore but at the time before i ever got a record deal i got a publishing deal and for people that don't know what publishing is is ba basically someone that manages your music a manager can manage the band but the publisher manages your songs and so they took us on, and they just thought the group was great, and we're like, hey, we're going to get you there, we're going to get you a record deal, you guys are going to be able to, you're going to make it, you're going to make it. And so uh, the company was called Hit and Run, and the main owner was Phil Collins, and his, his team kind of took us on, and they took us around the world, which is something very, I mean, no band gets to do anymore, but we got to literally travel the world without anything. All we had was a demo in our back pocket, and one thing that I learned was and it helped. I, I I do speak French, and we went to South of France, and we I mean we just went all over Belgium and you name it, and we went to it. And the coolest thing that I learned was how much music actually unites people instead of divides people. So I found that in the environment of having to do music, even though I was a black man fronting this rock band, it was never an issue because music was the center. Music was literally the key of this, and because we could go to Germany and do a show, and people didn't speak English. And regardless of the color of our skin, they still enjoyed the concept of music. So I always found it as, a, a, as trite as it might sound, as this great healer and not a divider. So I didn't really experience any of that because I was under the umbrella of music my whole life. Tripping on 
you a while to get you up and running on your Boondocks films. You could have really went into another a film company and and work for them and kind of you know set your your own path. But here you did this from scratch, and it took a while for you to get up and running where you're in demand as you are now. What what was that time period, and uh, was there any kind of doubts that you had going forward? Well, there was there was definitely doubts because at the end, towards the end, we you know we then shifted our energy and we went to a new label and we went then signed by Clive Davis, and it was you know it's a life changing experience when you sit in a fancy office in front of Clive Davis who says, "Hey, I love you guys," and that's a very cool feeling that you never forget. But but once the band ended and the music kind of died, and I was doing a lot of producing at the time, we were making records and that was going well, and I was making a good living doing it. But I've always loved film. It's what I actually studied because I thought I could study film and get something out of it as opposed to studying music, which I was already doing. Because I started, I think, when I was, my first gigs, I was getting paid by the time I was 14 or 15 in clubs. So I didn't feel like I could learn anything. I was learning on-the-job training. But with film was a very different story. And, it, and it's, kind of, it's kind of funny. What inspired me to become a director was we had to, the band shot a music video. And I won't name any names, but I will tell a little funny story that we shot this music video. And in the middle of, you know, usually how it works when you shoot videos, the singers have to do more than the band because the singers have to, you know, sing on camera. So I'm sitting in the makeup chair. It's got to be four in the morning, you know, very nervous and butterflies in my stomach. And the door, the door opens and my trailer opens. And I hear this crash. And I look behind me. And it's the director who's pissed drunk. And he's literally fell on his face and had now had blood coming, <laughs> coming out of his nose. And he reached up his hand, British guy, and he reached up his hand and he said, Hello, mate. And so I sh- looked down, had him on the ground, shook his hand and helped him up, bleeding from his nose. And he just looked at me and said, oh, It's going to be a great day today. It's going to be great. It's, it's going to be great. And we, I could smell the booze. And I was like, Oh, boy. We're in trouble. He walked out. Now with the introduction to him. And then the rest of the day, it appeared to me that he just had a hangover. And at one point, he left the set. And I walked in. And I started talking to the guitar player and telling the camera crew and the people what I wanted because he was gone. And that was sort of the spark that kind of started the, the first fire for me of loving to do, to kind of be in charge. And I feel like I then became a director because it was just a different way of telling stories. I was telling stories through songs. But I also realized very early on, and it was a little lesson that I had learned when I was at the label. We were recording one day, and we at the time, the big thing were ADATs. So ADATs were like a digital, look like a digital VCR. And so we asked the label, hey, listen, Wayman's doing a lot of recording right now. And we're not doing it on the real to real. We're not doing it on Pro Tools, but we're using these ADATs. Can you buy us one? And I can't remember. I think, let's say, that for, for argument's sake, let's say it cost 1500 bucks to buy one back then. Well, the label said, no, we're not going to buy it for you. But what we will do is we'll rent it. And I remember thinking, okay, I don't know the difference. Very great. So by the time they were done renting it, it ended up costing $3,000 for them to rent it. So they wouldn't pay 1500 bucks to buy it, but they paid $3,000 to rent it. And I just remember that little life lesson. So later on, it always became a big deal for me for ownership of things. It was like the biggest lesson I had learned. Like, oh, maybe it's better for me to own it than to ever borrow it or rent it. And so when I had this idea of saying, okay, I'm leaving New York City, and then I had a small stint with another band. I'd started this other band called Head Rush, and we 
did an album and we got a record deal and then right on the right on the cusp of the album coming out and shooting a music video the label itself folded so it kind of took the wind out of the sails and it it pushed me even more into fulfilling another dream of mine of starting film and so i just decided to go big or go home and i built my own film studio and started my own film company right from day one so that's how it kind of forced me into just getting past the fear and just trying to do it Wayman Boone, thank you very much for spending some time with us. And something came from Baltimore. Hey, nothing but a pleasure. You're, I love your show, and thank you for having me be a part this of it. This is our last song. Thank you guys so much for making this as cool as the last time. Hi, it's Tom Gowker, and I am the host of Something Came From Baltimore. Something Came From Baltimore is a words and music podcast, and it has famous and future famous artists, artists like Sean Jones, Rupert Holmes, Auntie Hammy, Joey DeFrancesco, Go-Go Penguin, Joey Alexander, Bucanti, Gerald Albright, Paula Cole, and Kat Edmondson. It's music that matters. It's music for your ears. Listen and subscribe to Something Came From Baltimore and be a part of that Be More music scene.